On the most recent edition of the podcast, we take a step back from sports for a little bit to discuss the icon Alex Trebek, who passed away earlier this week, a longtime host of Jeopardy. I welcome Ethan Brasowski, who is a 2008 Jeopardy champion and a general man about town to talk about the host, the show, and the greater culture surrounding Jeopardy. I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Ethan Brasowski. We're back, another edition, and we're going to step away from sports a little bit. Uh, my friend is on the line, uh, Ethan Brasowski. He is not Michael J. Fox. He has, he has played him on television. Hey, th- I know you're a busy guy, dude. Thanks for carving out a couple minutes for me. I wish any of that was true. I love every part of that. Uh, <laughs> it's great to be here. Thanks for thinking of me. I uh, obviously ordinarily would have nothing to say on your show, but uh, let's veer off of sports for a little bit. Let's talk about it. Have we had the conversation about Riptide? Before we get into what we're going to talk about, so the topic's going to be Jeopardy, and you'll understand why in a little bit, but have you and I ever discussed the television show Riptide? We've discussed Rip Torn quite a bit. I know that. but I, I, I was flipping through it. So, you know, your last name, Brasowski, is very close to Bazinski. Maybe it's not. Maybe that's just me, you know, my, my Northeastern immigrant bias floating in. But... <laughs> You, you know, because you were at a time, you were an actor, you were out and about doing the audition thing. You could really be, and people will wonder why I'm saying this, the next Tom Bray. Tom Bray portrayed Buzinski on Riptide. And had a pretty, pretty decent career as a character actor. I could totally see you in that mold, Ethan. I appreciate it. I really, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. We have not discussed that. I'm going to go uh, do a deep dive on Riptide right now and uh, after we're done with our conversation. Uh, yeah, that would, I love any actor that you know, any career that you can compare, that would have been great, but I didn't. I was like on one Ford commercial in like 1999, and that, that was that was about the extent of it. Uh, it was Perry King and Joe Penny were the two co-stars of that show. Oh, but, what was it on? What, like, what were the, I, I honestly, uh, and you know I like going deep on stuff, but I can't remember like the era or anything about that show. I believe if I, off the top of my head, NBC I know. And then I think I want to say like 87 to 89-ish, maybe. Can, can I presume that there's like some picture with like him and Scott Bakula at an Emmys party? I'm sure there, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. It, and, it, you know, it, it came back around. Like I caught it in reruns in the 90s while in college because I was too broke to have cable. And it, was, it, would, be, it would be there, Channel 9 or Channel 13, whatever, whatever it had. Um, but you're here because you can say – One of my favorite quotes from Bill Parcells is when the Giants won the Super Bowl in 86, he says, gentlemen, rest of your life. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it, you know. And I I know you you see we were emailing earlier, and I think you're a humble guy. You may be a little embarrassed by it, but not a lot of people can say this. You are a Jeopardy champion. I I am a Jeopardy champion. And, and you know, it's funny because I I don't – you're right. I, I don't talk about it a lot, nor do I announce it. However – if I am in a room where people are introducing me, friends who know me, very rarely will it not be the first or second thing they say about me. So I end up talking about it a lot. And as a matter of fact, um, over the last several years, I was um, uh, a spokesman for uh, a company, a think tank based in D.C., and I was giving a lot of speeches. And so I was often really every day, you know, in, sometimes in ballrooms, sometimes in uh, boardrooms. But no matter how I was introduced the last words out of 99.9% of the people who said anything about me, the last thing they said was, oh, and he's a Jeopardy champion. So you're right. I, I can't run away from it. And the joke I always make when introduced and is exactly what you said, because uh, I'm a, I like to tell people because I'm not, I don't want to brag. And, you know, I'm friends with Brad Rutter and all the, you know, the, the guys, who, you know, the, the, the real Jeopardy hounds. Um, and I always like to tell people, I remind them that I'm a one-time Jeopardy champion. But yeah. oh, you know what they call a one-time Jeopardy champion. Jeopardy champion. Jeopardy champion, exactly right. Well, <laughs> and, and and what's what's funny for me uh, talking about this with you is that um, you know they the always joke about one-hit wonders, you know, and it's like, well, you know, they have one hit. That's one more hit than anybody else had. Exactly. So, that's I mean, what I call it. Be proud. Be proud. Uh, I appreciate. It. I am proud. It's been 
um, you know, uh, it, it is absolutely, uh, well, I will say this actually, now that you have me thinking about it, I'm not a very directed person. Some people like have real goals and set them and like know exactly what they want and they reach and they get them. I'm not really like that. I'm more of a bounce around kind of guy. I'm a dilettante in a lot of ways. I, I like a lot of different things. But the one thing, really the one goal I've ever had in my life was to be on Jeopardy. And I, it's a long time ago now, but uh, I definitely achieved that goal. So you grew up then. So you grew up uh, watching the show, I'm assuming. Every night. I mean, we, we sat in the kitchen. We had a 13-inch TV, black and white, and then later color. Although I'm wondering if, yeah, if it started in 84. We must have been watching in black and white for a few years. Um, and we, yeah, we had dinner, too. My family ate dinner every night. And I don't remember many nights without Jeopardy. In fact, what I do remember is my father come, you know, we were on Long Island. He would take the Long Island Railroad and walk from the train station to the house. And my mother and we would have dinner, you know, ready. And we would eat not long after he got home, which was usually around like 6.45, 7 o'clock. And we'd watch Jeopardy no matter what and then turn off the TV and that's and we would have dinner. So whether it was like during dinner or right before, or right after, Jeopardy was always on every night. You bring the story up, and it's it's a very common story, you know. And, and it was interesting because I was look uh, on social media. Obviously, Alex Trebek, who passed away uh, a couple days ago, um, what I found compelling was there were so many immigrant stories about, you know, South Asian immigrants in particular that that was the show. You know, somebody tweeted, "Why are we all so sad about Alex Trebek?" It was because we, the only show we were really allowed to watch, and there's a degree of truth in that. And my mom still. You know, whenever she can, she does not miss Jeopardy unless, you know, she's out and about. She does. But if she's home at seven o'clock on a weeknight, Jeopardy yeah. is, is, is always on. Yeah, and it's a very common thing. And so it brings me to Robert Lloyd wrote the remembrance in the Los Angeles Times. It was, it was a great remembrance. And yeah. it brought up some things that I didn't realize about Alex Trebek. But what was fascinating to me, and I'd love to hear your, your take on this, is he hosted Jeopardy. For longer than Johnny Carson hosted The Tonight Show, which I did not know until I read that. And he was such a fixture on the TV on the TV landscape. He absolutely was. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, forgive me for not Googling before we sat down, but I'm fairly certain in around 2007, he surpassed Bob Parker as host as hosting the most television shows uh, in history. Yeah, yeah, because they were. So maybe it was Johnny Carson for any show and Bob Barker for game show. Game shows, yeah. And he, I guess, and I, you know, and I knew a little bit of it. I didn't realize that he had a pretty solid year run uh, as a host before he even got the Jeopardy gig. Oh, was, more than that. I mean, th th this guy, you do it, do yourself a favor and do a deep dive on early Trebek because he's a French Canadian, or he's not French Canadian. He does speak, I, I thought he was from, I thought he was from, I don't want to say because I, I totally forget, but he he speaks French perfectly, and he did trivia bowls uh, on t on lo local Canadian television in French and English. He did a couple of game shows in French. He did other things like that. Uh, then he did the radio. Uh, I mean, this was he he'd be the first to tell you that he's not the you know the, he's not hosting Jeopardy because he's the most brilliant guy in the world, but he's a kind of a brilliant guy. This is a man, rest in peace, who was really smart, really sharp. Um, I love listening to him in French. He did all kinds of stuff. He did high rollers. He did. It's funny because growing up, as much as I loved Jeopardy, uh, you can see how high and lowbrow I'm capable of going. And so was Alex, I suppose. Classic Concentration was one of my favorite games also. <laughs> um, and I did what I learned a couple things. We have a couple. He and I have a couple things in common. He has a degree in philosophy. And then he was a sportscaster for a time. He called curling for the cbc in canada which I, I found really really interesting and i guess that's just such a uh, uh like a classy and professional in regard to his broadcasting there was there wasn't much i mean you know i and we'll get into it because obviously you, you got a chance to be on set with him i you hear he's a fun loving guy but when he was on camera man what a what a pro he was he i mean he's he's i believe the term is consummate professional uh, absolutely. Um, now the thing about 
Well, well I'll tell you, I'll, I'll go into that. But um, since you bring up curling, I'm a. I, you remember I'm a bit of a curling enthusiast. You are. You are that's right. I, I'd forgotten, but now I remember. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Um, but in fact, you know how everyone has those the stupid little stories the, that they speak to uh, to Alex about on the show. Yeah. My story was about being at that time the kind of unofficial curling ambassador in America. I was doing a documentary about curling. The CBC had asked me to do it, and then we chatted about uh, curling. So really, the only you know, one of two full brief conversations I had with Alex. Uh, one was about curling. What is, so as a contestant, what is yeah. your access or what's the relationship? And I, you obviously you do the little, uh, the, the greet and meet, the meet and greet, right? At the beginning, and Ethan, this is Ethan uh, Versowski. He's an actor from Los Angeles, California. And then you, you go back and forth. But beyond that, was there any interaction with him beyond that context of the show? You know what? Um, the answer is no. And it, because it's, illegal um the whole point you, you after the quiz show um um uh, scandals uh you know that robert redford made the movie out of that changed everything so standards and practices i it's funny people they don't even consider it and then when you tell them this bit they're like oh i never really thought about it standards and practices is very very serious on set there is an absolute firewall between contestants who are um, dealt with by contestant coordinators. Uh, in my case, uh, it was two wonderful people, Maggie and Glenn. Maggie just retired from Jeopardy after being there for most of the time with Alex. Glenn is still there, but I think kind of graining toward that part of his life. Um, and they're amazing people, but you deal with them and they are the buffer. They can deal with the show and they can deal with you. You cannot deal with the show in any way. Now, the producers come by and people say hello. It's not, it's not crazy. But every interaction that you see with a contestant on Jeopardy with Alex is the only interaction they have with Alex. So absolutely not, with the exception of, you know, Brad Rutter, Ken Jennings, James Holzhauer, those guys who like go on for game after game after game. There's publicity, they travel with Alex, things like that. But no, you, you, you get there, uh, you go into the green room. Well, I mean, I don't know how far back you want to go. You, you, you interview, you do a mock game, they put you in a pool of contestants. Sometimes you can get a call in two months, sometimes it can be six months. You get the call, they give you a tape date, and then they bring you in, you get in there early in the morning, like 7 or 8 a.m., 7 a.m., I think, <clears throat> at least it was for me. They put you in a, a green room with the other contestants and they shoot five games in a day. Uh, I, I, shot, I shot on a Friday and I shot on the last game of that Friday. So I won my first game on Friday, and then had the weekend to be a Jeopardy champion, which I'm very happy about. But then I lost early morning on uh, on on Monday. But uh, you're in the green room you're with the other contestants, and you don't see Alex till he comes out, and then he speaks to you a few minutes, which I think the greatest skill that any host has. But the greatest hosts like Alex, um, they are able to. You full well know they don't know who you are. You full well know that they have cue cards and blue those blue cards in their hands. And yet they make it feel uh, like your old friends. And he was, uh, I, I, you know, I don't watch my old episode often, but like I said, some people ask and then like, I'll watch a little bit with them. So I'd probably watched it, I don't know, a year ago. Uh, and I did notice something. I was, you know, sometimes you watch yourself on camera and you're like, ah, oh, you cringe. You're like, you know what? That was, that was, I, was, I did okay there. Yeah. And I, Alex and I were talking and I remember, I looked at myself, I remember, being sort of impressed by him. I mean, you can hear in my voice, and if you know me at all, you can see my facial reactions, him responding to my discussion about curling and him knowing so much off the cuff, it felt very familiar. And I, I was, I was impressed by him. I was impressed with him. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a lost art, you know, like I'm a little older than you, but generationally that off the cuff knowledge is not, it's something that's still kind of slowly, slowly disappearing. Yeah. Uh, but you went into it a little bit. Take me through that day. So um, you, you you taped on a Friday. So what did you do the night before? And then take me through the Friday taping day, uh, sure. the day you won that championship. I'm sure nobody will want to know about this, but I'm glad to detail you in uh, in, in very specific. <laughs> I want to know. That's what's important. It's about uh, I want to know. So basically, so what did I do? Let's let me back up to. Let's say when do you hear you're going to be on the show? Like, what's the lag time between? All right, Ethan, we need you to come to the studio between the time you actually go to the studio. Three months for me. I had three. 
So they scheduled you three months ahead. So you knew you were going three months ahead of time. And for the vast majority of people, it's three to six. I think it's either always three months lead time or three to six months lead time. So what they do is they do their annual search for contestants, which I bypassed because I was very, I was playing trivia at O'Brien's in Santa Monica with other Jeopardy champions who this is almost 20 years ago now, but have since become very close friends of mine. Brad Rutter and I lived together for a decade. Um, we play, we still play every Wednesday night, although uh, on Zoom now. So I skipped the part where you get like, you have to apply. So I was already in the pool and then they take you to the Radisson near uh, Dinah's in, Centra, in, in Culver City. Right, there. okay, yeah. Um, and they do like a, an interview process, a mock game of Jeopardy, questions, you have to take a written test. So if you pass each one, then you finally do a mock game and they see how personable you are, if you belong on TV, if they can be helpful, you know, they do their own production stuff. So once they make that decision, you are you are informed within a few weeks or months, I think they have flexibility there, that you are in the pool. So please be ready. And then once they make you, uh, you're in the pool, they then choose uh, a date for your air date call you and say, this is your air date, be ready, and give you all the information you need to show up at, in, uh, at Sony Studios. Um, so the night, so I got, I mean, how, how, how deep relief do you want to get here? Uh, because there, <laughs> um, I was, thr- so I remember exactly where I was when I got the phone call that I would be on, that I was in, that I was, they were getting an air date. It was Erev Rosh Hashanah. I remember that. It was the night before Rosh Hashanah. Uh-huh. And I was living in Pico Robertson, not because I'm religious in any way, but because, you know, some of my friends also, we were living in that area. And so I was walking to a store to pick up some challah or some food before the holiday. I was still a young man. I was in my mid-20s, late-20s. Um, and I called my mother and my father. I was like, my first call, you guys are going to be absolutely psyched. And my father said, no, we just talked about this. So my parents, we've been watching Jeopardy together every day. These are people who love Jeopardy, know Jeopardy. This should be a very big deal. And my mo- my father says, <clears throat> uh, good, you could use the money. And my mother, and she means this well. I know what she meant. But my mother gets on the phone and she's like, I hope you don't go up against anybody good. <laughs> she, of course, she wanted me to win. She was being supportive. But I was like, yeah, I hope I don't go up against anybody good also. Thanks, Mom. I think I think your mom and my mom are probably friends. Because that <laughs> sounds like something my mom would say. So, uh, yeah, she's ex- why was she expecting a plumber and an architect, both with a PhD? Yeah, right? both with a PhD. Exactly right. So uh, that was the night I got on. Um, and then, uh, oh, you know what? Now that I, so it must have been about a month or six weeks before the tape date they told me. Maybe I was wrong about that, three months. Um, <clears throat> and then I believe it was October, November, December. Uh, it was either late October or, or early November was my tape date. I'm sure I could find out for sure. It was something around that. Um, and the interim between finding out I, of my tape date and my tape date, I went into full preparation mode. And that means reading books, um, you know, studying presidents, U.S. geography, all the things that you might expect. But really the the number one thing you're supposed to do if you ask, and I I had a big leg up because I had a lot of friends who had been on Jeopardy and were champions. And there were two things they told me to practice, the buzzer. And uh, there's a pen, the Dr. Grip pen, the big Dr. Grip that feels like the buzzer. So they told me to practice with that watching old games so basically for like six weeks to two months whatever it was i was watching you know game show network this was before i mean streaming was out there but i don't think you could like go stream games of jeopardy at the time right right. Um, so i was watching on gsn old game uh, episodes every day and buzzing in and trying to get that timing right i was also reading books speaking to my friends playing trivia um, and finally, the day arrives, the night before, um, I remember I ate at, at Native Foods uh, in Westwood because I wanted like a healthful whole uh, whole meal. I went to bed very early. Uh, I drove myself to the, the studio and our good friend, Michael Benier, shout out to Michael, uh, my brother, Jeremy, and about a dozen or so other friends came to, uh, to watch me tape. Um, I get there in the morning, you you stand in the parking lot of um, of Sony, 
they have an intern or uh, you know somebody who work a PA on the show walk you into the studio. Like all game shows, like any shows, if you've never been on set, it's freezing cold. They tell you to bring uh, stuff that's heavy. Oh, I should also mention this. You you have to bring changes of outfits four or five games, presuming you win every game. So to be ready to wear five different outfits. So I showed up with two garment bags with suits and stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, you go into the green room. They uh, Maggie and Glenn speak to you. They gave you some prepped, uh, you know, preparatory notes. They bring everybody out on the set to, to see it once, to stand behind the podium to get used to it. And then they bring you back into the green room and they start running games. And man, when I tell you, you want to talk about professional. I mean, 22 minutes, 22 minutes, 22 minutes, 22 minutes. They just rock through these games. They know what they're doing. Um, and yeah, I was waiting all day. And I didn't know it was the last game, and I didn't know if I was going to be called. There were alternates in there, you know, obviously for television purposes. And because I was local living in Los Angeles, <clears throat> those are the ones that they might not get to. They'll call you back. They, they tell you that might happen. But it was the last game uh, of five they shot on that Friday. They put me in, and it was against uh, the one-time champion who had just won, who had gotten to know that morning. Um, I believe his name was Mertesa Sertuwala. And I believe he was a lawyer from Atlanta. He was a great player. And I'm very, very pleased uh, that I beat him, but I was very close. And you'll forgive me, I'm totally forgetting my other contestant's name. She was a lovely woman. She didn't do quite as well as either of us. It was more of a game between the two of us. And I forget her name. Um, Teacher of some sort, right? Or is that your second? Is that second? One of the, I think one of the games you played, you were up against a teacher, correct? I'm guessing you've seen it more recently than I have. Uh, I think it's totally possible. I just don't remember. You know, here's a funny thing: is I don't think I've ever seen your winning game. I saw oh, the game not, where you, I saw the one where you lost. You know, uh, you know what's funny? Because the one that I won, I think, is more easily easy to find online. How did you find the losing game? No, no. I think I watched it live. I think <laughs> I watched it live. I remember Ben, you're telling me that you were on. And, <laughs> And I missed, I guess, I, I thought he meant you're going to be, you know, you're going to be on the next day. Right. I was like, no, no, he was, so I said, well, I, so I watched Ethan, but he lost. <laughs> oh, you watched the wrong one. He, he I told, I said, no, you didn't tell, you know, the whole thing. Uh, I, will, I will say this though, as I mentioned before, sometimes you watch yourself and you're, you know, proud or not proud of things you do. When I lost, I, I do to this day feel very good that I believe I come off as a very good winner. A very good loser, rather. You do. You come. You come across well. You come across well. Yeah, I absolutely do. Everybody, uh, everybody on there is just. I mean, is just thrilled. Is just so happy to be. I don't know anyone who's on Jeopardy and loses. Is like, screw this place. You know, f you, Ali. No, that, that <laughs> what? Um. So, so they they tape five shows in a day. To tape a show, is it pretty close to what we see? Yes. Is, oh, so so they they just they burn right through there, huh? Right through. I mean, uh. You know, they, they have they build in time for mess ups or going backs or anything. But in general, like if they can do it in 30 minutes with those um, with those those breaks in there, they they film them with the in real time what the commercial break would be. And then we come back and do it. The exception to that is if something goes wrong. And I did have something go wrong in my game. We had to pause for quite a few minutes, actually. Uh so when they go to break, are you guys just to get you water? What, what are they doing in between as they go to commercial? Glenn, Maggie, and forgive me if anyone listens to this, I'm going to feel like a real jerk for not remembering the third person's name. Each of us are kind of assigned loosely for that game, a content, contestant coordinator. And I believe it was Glenn who was standing with me. They come up. So you can imagine the podium. You're, you're at the Jeopardy podium and you have two people on either side or I think I was in the middle for that first game, yeah. Um, and you have each contestant coordinator standing in front of the podium looking directly at you. And part of that is so you don't talk to the other contestants. They're not trying to breed an air of contentiousness or even competition. For standards and practices reasons, they don't want anybody discussing anything. And so in addition to the contestant coordinators, standards and practices is always nearby also. Um. And just, I just, my my guest last week was Thomas Walker, who is a, a baseball coach at San Jose State, played baseball. Um, and he, uh, we were joking before you, I turned the mic on, um, he, I talked about him, he talked about, in high school, he played George Bailey in a 
stage version of my so you know my so called life. No, it's a wonderful it's life. Great. I would love to see George Bailey in my so called life. Yeah. I would love Jordan, you're, you're thinking of these drugs all wrong. Uh, but which, by the way, hold on, hold on one second, just a little interjection there. Go ahead. My so-called life was written by Winnie um, Holdsman, who went to Wheatley, my high school. My so-called life is based on my high school, who also went to my high school. Famous supermodel Carol Alt. Okay. Who yeah. Many years was dating Glenn, the contestant coordinator on Jeopardy. There you go. I, I love it. I love bringing it all, bringing it all full circle. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's wonderful. It's such a part of Americana as is Jeopardy. So yeah. your, your name is there. Like they said that, you know, that's one thing you always have that Jeopardy championship. Now I'm wondering, so I'll ask you, yeah. is, is the show as iconic without Alex Trebek? Because I was looking back and there's so many game shows that have run for so long, but I really think he's a big part of why that show succeeded. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I was just having a conversation with a friend recently, actually, about percentages and how do like do the Seinfeld actors or the Friends actors did they deserve pieces of the show or big salaries? Did Alex deserve to be a producer or just talent? What if they had gotten rid of him at '86? Could they have done somebody else? Listen, uh, they created an amazing show. Um, why am I forgetting the very famous person who invented it? Uh, Merv Griffin. Um, you know, he created an amazing show, an amazing theme song. It was a hit with Art Fleming. Uh, might it have been a hit with somebody else? Probably. That doesn't change the fact that Alex is iconic, that he, he put his stamp on it, that it's completely indelible. When I was talking with my friend, one of the things I'd said was, I mean, we talked about Bob Barker before. There, there's nobody who doesn't think of Bob Barker and Price is Right, right? Right. It doesn't mean that the show isn't still incredibly popular and been going now for over a decade with Drew Carey. It's right. still a great show. So it's so, you know, soon after his unfortunate death. Um, but they're probably going to get another host. And my hope is it will be different and great. But yeah, he, he things become iconic for a reason. I mean, look at Godfather 3. I know you're a Godfather fan, right? I mean, one of the reasons it's not a great movie, as great as the others, is because the cast just didn't click the same way. Uh, we won't get into why, because this is going to be broadcast, and I might want her to hire me one day. That's, that's neither here nor there. Right, right. But yeah, it does take... It, when things become Americana, when things become famous... It's usually because lightning is caught in a bottle and it's those very specific, um, uh, it's a chemistry. And Alex was absolutely part of that chemistry. I'm sure and the producers knew it. Yeah, magic. Yeah, it, it, sometimes it just works. Sometimes it just works and it, it worked for so long. And, and it's interesting because in looking at it, you know, Alex Trebek is a broadcaster. You said consummate pro earlier. Those are perfect words. And we don't see a lot of that anymore. As I said, I'm, I'm a little older than you are. And I just remember coming up and it was like there was Cosell, there was you know, Letterman, um, uh, Howard Stern obviously is in the conversation. And then and Trebek's in the conversation generationally because uh, we're coming a little bit after, uh, after Carson, who you know, made, are most considered to be the kind of the iconic broadcaster uh, for his generation. Well, and it's, it's, include- it's just different. You should also include Kimmel in there because Kimmel is actually kind of the last holdout of how it used to be done. And I think the real difference there, um, Ghazal, is that um, they all, they all, with almost, with very few exceptions, started in radio, started in broadcast, and their 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 job that they want, they grew up and they made a decision like I'm going to be a broadcaster. And there's a very specific order to become a broadcaster. Alex Trebek was not famous and then hosted Jeopardy. He became famous hosting the shows. And you're right, you don't have that anymore. I think you, you still have it a little bit. I mean, um, Ryan Seacrest, love him or hate him, no doubt. This is a guy who worked his way up, came through radio, built his own stuff, and is a host. Jimmy Kimmel, started in radio, totally a host, did the man show, all that. But more and more, we are seeing famous people, um, and I'm not denigrating anybody, but I think a perfect example is the new supermarket sweep with... Um, 
uh, Jones from uh, from SNL. Leslie Jones. Exactly. She's wonderful. She's an incredible actress and an amazing comedian, but she's not a host. She might prove herself to be a host, and then maybe it's great. I haven't seen it yet. But there's a trend over the last several years that we want a famous person to bolster this, regardless if they're good at it or not. You know, the the masked singer, all, all the other stuff that's going. It's usually famous people who host, not hosts who become famous. They need a name. It's it's the old it's the old actor's lament, right? It's like you're perfect for it, but they need a name. Yeah. So exactly. put a put put a pin in pin. Put a pin in these dates, Ethan. If we don't get Michael J. Fox, then you're out. <laughs> I love that that is what you think of me. I would. I, I don't think you think I'm Al- Michael J. Fox. I think you think I'm Alex P. Keaton. Uh, I, mean, I know it's kind of a joke you tell about yourself, so I, I, I'm playing into it. But uh, you, know, you have to remember, I've seen you act, so you you got some range. You could do some different things. I, sure I could host Jeopardy. I could do anything. All right. I'm on a very short list of new hosts. You stepped into the puddle. What do you think? Like, is there, do you think there's a short list? Now, obviously he'd been ill and he had kind of been public with his illness and kind of his fight with the illness. So clearly in the back of some, but there's some producer out there wondering, okay, how long is this going to go? And what do we need to do? Do you think there's a list that's already been put together? Or are they putting that list together now in terms of Alex Trebek's replacement? I think it's a very big property and as irreplaceable, and by the way, there is a feeling of family on that set. Sometimes you go in, it feels corporate. There's a very serious feeling of we've been together for 30 years. We do our jobs, but we hang out together. It, it, there's a real sense of community and, and loveliness, not only with the, the, the show and the producers and the, and the uh, cast and the clue crew, but also what I've been very fortunate to be part of over the last 15, 20 years since I was on the show among the contestants. Um, and so there is a, a feeling of family there. So I absolutely think they probably did not think about it out loud much until unfortunate days a few days ago. Uh, but there's no way that the producers haven't had a list ready to go. I know when Alex got sick, he had done an interview and mentioned there's a woman on CNN that he thought was particularly interesting. I forget her name, forgive me. Um, and he mentioned her, uh, I'm sure people, you know, have mentioned Brad Rutter, who's the highest earning Jeopardy champion of all time, Ken Jennings, who's, the, you know, the greatest of all time. And now Ken, just a few weeks ago, I'm sure you know, or months now, they announced he's an associate producer on the show or, or a non-associate producer, consulting producer on the show. Uh, and he's, he was set to do this season doing Clue Crew Dewey duties, um, being there as a consultant. I... Personally, if you ask me, I think they're involving him in that way to maybe make that transition a little easier to Ken being the host. But then again, as famous as Ken is for being on Jeopardy, he's not a host. He hasn't had well, but he owns he has his own podcast, he has his own radio show. Since he's been on Jeopardy, he's put in a lot of work. I don't think necessarily with an eye toward hosting. I don't know Ken very well. We've only met a handful of times through Brad. Um, but he is a kind warm, clearly generous, I would even say effusive person. Um, and everyone who's met him has nothing but great things to say about him and he deserves all his success. So I was going to say that maybe he had an eye toward it years ago, but I don't get the feeling he's that cunning. And I mean that in, in a negative way. I don't think he really, I, I think if he has been working toward becoming a better host, it's probably to be a better host because he wants to be a better person or a better, you know, build a skill. I think he would be an amazing host. I think there's also the reality of the time we live in that maybe a woman or somebody of color would be a more apt choice for the time. Ken is a, uh, as wonderful as he is, a pretty cisgender guy, you know, you know, he's just like a man, a white dude. So um, I don't know what direction they're going to go. I'm a little disappointed now because I was hoping you were going to tell me that Brad and Ken didn't like each other. Get a, uh, get a- Get a Tupac and Biggie vibe going between the two of them. They're, they're, it's great. You know, like I said, Brad and I lived together for years. We're He's one of my best friends. We're very, very tight. Uh, we play trivia with my brothers every Wednesday night um, during the pandemic on Zoom. Uh, no, they're, they have nothing but nice things to say about each other, as you would hope. I mean, it's a it's a gentleman's sport, and they uh, they there there is definitely that feeling of um, uh, of honor and appreciation. In fact. You, you, since since you're a, a sports guy and your audience is usually listening to sports, um, I'm sure you've seen Grand Prix, Frankenheimer's Grand Prix. Yes. 
much in the same way that that movie brings out like these are guys, these are these are strong dudes these are these are dudes who are driving their cars they are dying they are, they have the women the women they're doing it but when push comes to shove they will always back up their competitor and i think that is very much how it feels on jeopardy so of, yeah yeah it makes sense uh there's a sense of honor among the, comp- the, the the competitors even though you're competing against somebody there's there's a there's a bar Absolutely. And who, why wouldn't you want, if, if you were Brad and you had to be compared to someone all the time, even though you won more money and but more people know Ken, why wouldn't you want to respect the person uh, that? And if you're, if you're Ken and you keep losing, by the way, which he did for years to Brad, he only won in January on the greatest of all time tournament. What are you going to do? Denigrate the guy you keep losing to? You respect the hell out of him. And if you do finally beat him, well, that really says something. Yeah, a little Mac and Roll Lendl thing going on. Exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, Murtaza, who I beat, uh, he only won one game like I did, but uh, I, I'm quite certain if he had gotten through me, he would have gone through, you know, buzzsawed through others. He, he was terrific. Mm-hmm. And the woman who beat me was incredible. She went on to win, I think, over $100,000. You brought up the the camaraderie between the contestants. So I, I think you touched on it. We talked about this a little bit earlier, years ago. Um, so a, a number of you guys, you know, you, I, you mentioned Brad, but a number of you guys still hang out, right? Who are the guys who are in, the guys and women who are in Southern California? Do you yeah. guys get together? Yeah, we do. Everyone. So before pandemic, every Wednesday night, it used to be O'Brien's in Santa Monica. Now it's O'Brien's still in Santa Monica, but on Wilshire, Wilshire Boulevard, um, the different O'Brien's. Yeah, uh, every Wednesday. It's a very big part of our lives. Uh, for a while, I was doing a job that kept me on the road for many years, so I didn't go much anymore. But, um, you know, obviously, Brad and I are close. Um, you know, Jerome, um, uh, my buddy uh, my buddy Ken was a, uh, was a Jeopardy uh, guy. I was also on mil- um, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Uh, I'm having a hard time remembering everyone's names right now. I'm, I, I have at least half a dozen very close and dozens of good friends who have been on Jeopardy. Uh, we're very tight. When MASH ended, they did, <laughs> they did a short-lived sitcom called After MASH, right? And so after you... Was that finished, an addition to Honeycut? Was that an addition to, uh, what's it called, to Chopper John MD? Yeah, yeah. It was after MASH. It was, I think, two seasons, and they, they it was post-Korean War, what they all were doing after the Korean War. Um but you, you, I think you and Brad together, didn't you go and win on a different game show? Yeah, sure. the whole Jeopardy thing. Take me through that. So I, as I told you, I, the only thing I ever wanted, to, the only goal I ever had was Jeopardy. I wanted to be on Jeopardy. And that went for not, that not, it was not only a big goal. It was, I wanted to win Jeopardy. I wanted to be on Jeopardy. So let's put it clearly, clearly. I wanted the only thing I wanted to do was be able to play Final Jeopardy. I didn't want to be in the hole and not be able to play. So once, I, once that happened, it was great. I wanted to play Jeopardy. And at the time, I had suddenly become more, I was growing to be friends with all those other Jeopardy guys. I wanted, no kidding around, I wanted to go back on Wednesday night and with my head held high. They would have been fine. There wouldn't have been any ribbing. But I wanted to go in there and be a, one of them and be a Jeopardy champ. Um, so like, like getting the couch, if you're a comic on Carson, you wanted to get the couch, right? You want to get the call. You want to get the call. You want him to call you over. You want to go to the couch. Exactly right. Exactly right. So I wanted to do that. But, um, once I was on Jeopardy and the, the, uh, the, the aftermath happened, um, forgive me. I lost my train of thought there. What, what was, what were you looking to know there? Uh, you're, you're coming back to the Jeopardy community after all. So you, you, you wanted to be on Jeopardy. Oh, exactly. Wasn't so, important, but winning became important because you're, you're friends with these guys now. So I'm back and playing with them and we're all friends. And I, I didn't want to be on another game show. I know all my friends who didn't, who, who aren't Jeopardy people, they were like, you should do this. You should do, you know, this game show. You should go on that. It'll be great. You should wheel of fortune. I was like, Jeopardy is different. And just as we talked about before, there is something special about Jeopardy. It holds a place in American history and Americana. I'm a one-time Jeopardy champion. I don't want to be a game show guy. I want to be a Jeopardy winner. And I never thought and never attempted to be on another game show again. However, I'm friends with Brad. I'm friends with Jerome. I'm friends with Alan Bailey. I'm friends with all these guys who have much bigger Jeopardy um, resumes than I. I've won hundreds of thousands of dollars on Jeopardy, millions together. Uh, Brad has won millions. <clears throat> and they 
all got interested in this new game show that ABC did, very short-lived, called, originally it was called Six Minds, and it was based on a Russian success. And they eventually changed it to Million Dollar Mind Game. And what it was, was it was supposed to be this team of six players in a kind of a faux Monte Carlo setting. We're all in tuxedos and we're sitting around this big kind of, uh, you know, roulette table-ish kind of round table. And we're supposed to be um, figuring out a clue, or figuring out, um, what's the word, riddles, high-end riddles together as a team. So that was that game. And my friends suddenly were all talking about interviewing for it and going together as a team because they asked for people to interview with teams. And so about 20 of us or so from the Jeopardy went to interview. And I was like, it took me, I was like, you know what, guys, I don't want to do it. But then, and that was my first instinct. But then I looked at Brad going, I looked at Alan going, I looked at Michael Rooney going, I looked at all these guys who are serious many time champs. And I was like, well, they're not afraid to do it and like sully their reputation. Who the, who the hell am I? <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll go. Yeah, I would love to go interview with you guys. This, this was great. Um, and so we went and it, I remember the interview process was at, um, is it Hollywood? It's not Hollywood Center Studios, the one on, on Gower and Santa Monica, if anyone's listening in L.A. Um, you know, one of those rent-a-studio places. And they did a series of interviews there where they essentially asked you to bring as many people as possible for your team. And then the producers whittled people down until your team was six players or six players in an alternate. And it ended up being me, Brad Rutter, um, um, John and Becky, and uh, we're now married. Um, they're both musicians. Uh, and John has subsequently gone on to be a, a multiple day Jeopardy champ. Uh, they would play trivia with us. Um, I actually met John. Well, that's another story. I met John through uh, a course of events that were all very uh, kind of at this time. There was a lot of stuff going on. Um, Alan Bailey, who now we don't talk to very much or I don't talk to Alan a lot because he is now a writer for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And because he needs a firewall between him and potential contestants, I see. he didn't really uh, inter inter interact that much anymore. And my friend Adam Stein, who's a filmmaker, an extraordinary filmmaker, um, and we were really good friends at the time. I brought him in. He's a Harvard guy with a brilliant mind. And he ended up being on the team with the rest of us who knew each other from O'Brien's pub quiz. And we ended up filming it. We ended up being the last show of six that they taped. It was a huge flop. Uh, in fact, the only reason it aired is because it was the year of the basketball, so the NBA strike, and ABC needed something to put on the air. And so they, uh, they, they aired the show, uh, which is good because another little tidbit, um, game shows, if you tape and it doesn't air, they don't have to pay you. I did not know that. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if it's every single show, but I believe that is standard practice that it, the, the contract says you will receive your money after air day, six months after the air date. Well, and that, that kind of dovetails into my next question. How long, so six months you get for Jeopardy, you win. Yeah. And you get your money six months after. Is that what happens? Yes. And I was so broke. I needed to borrow money from I think I ended up borrowing money from my parents. So you're not allowed to tell anybody. Right. You can't put it on the Internet. You're, you're, you're like you, have, you were sworn to secrecy until the air date. And I took it very seriously. So at the time, I knew that I had this windfall coming, which wasn't much. It was twenty five grand. Um, but I was, like I said, young, out of work. I was an actor. I didn't have a lot of money. And I needed to like somehow tell my father that it was good. Like, trust me, I can't tell you why, but trust me, I can get this money back to you in six months. Uh, and I <laughs> think it was, it's so long ago now I forget because I asked a few people, I think it was my father, ultimately my parents who floated me. Uh, and then I paid them back once I got the money. Did you know? So yeah, this is, I'm the only one that's going to be interested in this question. How did you, so, how, so what do they, they give you a 1099? Is that how you do it? Or a winning, yeah. a winning separate? Uh, no, it's taxed just as normal income. And I made so little money that year that I had like almost $0 taken out of it. Oh, wow. Okay. That's so just because me, because I was broke. Is it a W-2 or a 1099? <sighs> that is a really good question. Nobody cares. All our listeners, all our six listeners are all gone now. So don't uh, worry. About it. Um, if I am not mistaken, 
It is a 1099 because you are responsible for the taxes yourself. Okay. All right. Pretty sure, but I can't remember 100%. Yeah, that's always interesting. Very, you know, the people, financial situations, you know, you don't know, right? I mean, most people on Jeopardy, they have like a full-time job or they're, you know, like you were saying, a guy who's a lawyer from Atlanta comes in and, and does the show. Uh, I always found that interesting that L.A. in particular, it's almost like a Vegas mentality. It's like, oh, I'm going to go on a game show and get this windfall. You know, and you see like your friends, you see Brad and guys like Ken Jennings. They just roll. They're rolling off the dollars. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That's, that's a pretty good payday. It's. I mean, for me, it was thrilling. And then when we were on Million Dollar Mind Game, uh, I mean, there were six of us and we won six hundred thousand dollars. I mean, I won a hundred grand on that show. Is that that? People always people always ask me what I did with the money, and I was like, uh, I ate and paid for health insurance. That's that's what I, I for for like three years on that money. I mean, that's there are worse things you could have done with it. <laughs> exactly. So, I, I was gonna ask you what did you what did you do with the Jeopardy money? Well, seems like you know luxuries like rent and food probably were the top two, huh? I didn't do anything. I, there were zero special purchases. I we we definitely went out for drinks at backstage afterward that I paid for after I won. Um, and after we won Million Dollar Mind Game, the six of us and our um, significant others went out to um, Maselli's in the Valley right near. Uh, um, yeah, I know that place. Yeah. Um, but other than that, yeah, no, I, I, I needed that money so badly that I, uh, I, I used it for a living. That's an American story. So it is. Uh, a bit. Uh, you brought up The Godfather earlier. So The Godfather, the story they tell, James Conn tells the story that. When Francis Ford Coppola learned that he was going to direct the movie, he invited James Caan, Al Pacino, Brando, and Tom, um, uh, Robert Duvall. Tom to, Hagen. To read, yeah, Tom Hagen to read with, and, and he, he, paid, he bought four corned beef sandwiches. That was that was the that was the draw, right? There was a deli that he was going to get the corned beef sandwiches for. We we'll have some nosh, we we'll get some deli. Yeah, and then the studio obviously didn't want; they wanted a bunch of other people. And then they ended up with the cast that Coppola wanted, and James kind of was Coops. Yeah, they could have had it all for four corned beef sandwiches. I guess equate to you is if you want to go to Jeopardy, I guess you just show up at O'Brien's, and that's O'Brien's is kind of that breeding ground for all Jeopardy champions. It's you know the the Wall Street Journal did a piece on it about a year and a half or two years ago now. It is within that community. It is widely regarded as the hardest, the most challenging, the most interesting, serious pub quiz in America. There's another one called Saint X in in Washington D.C. that's very good, and a lot of the players go back and forth, and we have a lot of friends. These guys all play. I, I've never gone just because um, I don't know. I just never made an, an effort. But the rest of my friends I've been talking about, they all play um, the uh, the trivia championships annually in in Vegas. What do they call it? The Nash, National Trivia Championship. It used to be Tacona. Like some, I forget what it stands for, but it's, they do a, a, a an annual year where everyone who cares about trivia comes into Vegas for a week and plays. I want to. So I have a deep, deeply embedded uh, spot. I have deeply embedded people in the in your life. Yes. Uh, so and, and tell me if this is true or not. They could they could, they could be playing with me. I was told that sometime in a few days. That's why I asked you. We did the night before. A few days before your Jeopardy appearance, yeah. that you went to a karaoke bar and sang uh, Al Weird Al Yankovic's "I Lost on Jeopardy." True, not true. That is semi-true, and I think this is a game of telephone. That okay. is ninety percent true. The night of my air date of my losing show, I went to Boardwalk Eleven with a handful of friends and sang "I Lost on Jeopardy" karaoke at Boardwalk Eleven. Okay, so Bor- I, I, that's wild. They had that song. <laughs> Boardwalk Eleven's great. They have everything. Do you know something? I miss karaoke as much as I miss absolutely anything during this period. I miss it so badly. Were you that regular with it? Yes. I play. I mean, ordinarily during a normal year without COVID, I'm probably a karaoke two two nights a week. And people that know this about Ethan, he he sung the national anthem. I saw, oh, you, I saw you, you sang at a USC baseball yeah, game. Yeah, at Dado Field, at Dado Field. Yeah, so it's like, I, I see you posted, a, and, and, and my first thought is, wow, Ethan likes college baseball, you know? So we got to get you, if we have if we have college baseball this year, we got to get you out to Riverside, and you can sing the national anthem there. 
Well, it's funny. First of all, Gazelle, I don't, I can't believe how deep you're going on my life. Uh, you're very kind. Uh, I will, I will take it uh, as a compliment, um, or I'll just take it as you're an amazing professional. Um, another Jeopardy connection about that. So the reason I, I love baseball. I grew up a Yankee fan. I very quickly turned to be to make the Dodgers my National League team, and I'm a huge Dodger fan. Very happy about this year. Um, so I love baseball of all kinds. Another Jeopardy contestant that we play trivia with um, named Martin, Marty Butterick, uh, who's a very close friend of mine, uh, he manages, and he's going to hate me because I don't know specifically, he's not the team manager. He, like, manages operations. I forget exactly. He does something for the USC baseball operations, and that's, oh. his, that's his career. Um, and so he would give me I, – I basically had – season tickets to Dado Field as if you can't just like get them for $2. Um, But I would go for, there were a couple years there, a couple seasons where I was there a bunch, 20 times a season, 30 times a season. And eventually he asked me to, um, to sing the national anthem, but Marty was on Jeopardy uh, as well. He's been a trivia guy for years. That's that. So I only got to do the national anthem at Dado because of trivia. Yeah, and I love Dado Field is one of my favorite venues. I mean, Southern California, we're spoiled. We have so many great venues for college baseball. And Dado is just, just classic, in obviously in its layout, but also in the fact that it's just kind of tucked right onto the campus there. You can walk through the fence, and boom, you got a baseball field. And obviously so, the, the history, the history of, of, Rob, of Rod Dado and USC baseball. Yeah, it's beautiful. I had so much fun there. Again, I sort of disappeared from... Uh, you know, I, I also used to be a, a tour guide in L.A., so I, I know L.A. very well. But the last five to seven years, I've been traveling so much that um, I don't get to like I, I haven't been to a game of Dado for probably seven years because I just I'm not around during the season anymore. Uh, what so what I mean, can I ask? Obviously, the pandemic has changed things. What are you doing these days, you know, professionally, personally? How, how are you dealing with the fact that we've been indoors for six months now? Not great. Not great, Bob. Not great. <laughs> uh, I, I was told my first, my first lesson in journalism was don't ask somebody how they're doing because they'll tell you. <laughs> um, I would say I'm handling things at a C plus to B minus level. I, and maybe everyone is. I, I, and you can tell me how you're, how you're feeling. I just I, I look around and some people, and maybe this is not just during pandemic times, but all times, you always look and everyone seems to be doing better. You know, they seem to be fine. Their, their relationship is great. He's, his career is terrific. And everyone has their own problems. I mean, this has been a challenge. I, I'm a, uh, as you know, we haven't seen each other in person for quite a while. But when we saw each other, it was usually at parties and usually doing something fun and usually doing something active. I'm a real social guy. Um, karaoke is just the tip of the iceberg for it. I, I miss it. I miss it a lot. Uh, you know, I have a, um, you know, wonderful girlfriend, Kim, and, you know, we do our lives together. Terrific. She's an artist and I basically live in her wonderland, this like beautiful art fantasia that she creates, which is terrific. And it is nice to nest, but it's pretty challenging. What I have been doing professionally, part of the problem, part of the reason I'm not having a terrific time is just before this started, I had uh, took a severance at uh, that other job I had. Uh, specifically to start a cheese company. Uh, so I don't know if you know this, so cheese is a, is a pretty serious hobby of mine, and I was ready to make it from an avocation into a vocation. And I started in earnest this cheese events company, basically to be a private curator of cheese events, put together cheese parties, um, teach people how to make cheese plates, um, you know, show them how they're doing it wrong, show them what's right, uh, I, I guess my real goal is somebody who loves cheese so much, and I know how ridiculous it sounds, but um, everybody loves cheese. With very little exception, you get cheese out, people love it. People love talking about it, and yet nobody's really that good at it. And they go to Trader Joe's, or they go to Whole Foods, and they get what's there, or they get like a quarter pound of gorgonzola, or they get some cheddar, and they like it, but they don't know much about it. And when they are given the opportunity, and this is why I really love this, when people are given the opportunity to sit with five cheeses that have been selected that are serious and raw and beautiful and pair them with everything and show them what it can be, the reaction is just intense. So professionally, I was starting to do that, and we had a beautiful uh, kickoff event uh, about three weeks before this started. And I've done some things. We're doing some corporate events and some Zoom meetings, uh, but it's, 
sort of thing. Uh, so right now I'm kind of figuring out how I can translate that. Can I do something? Um, can I go work as a cheesemonger at an, at an existing place? Uh, but that's that's what I'm focused on at, at the moment. You have the right audience. You're talking. I've had about six different cheeses in the fridge right now. What do you got? What do you oh, got? So I got okay. So in slice form, okay. I have the Swiss, the basic Swiss. Classic. And I have the Colby Jack. Okay. And then in cream form, I have the two different cream cheeses. I have one. It's like the two dollar whipped cream cheese to put on your bagel from Trader Joe's. Yeah. And then I have the high end herbed cream cheese that I use, you know, for special events, you know, crackers yeah. and baguettes. You, have a guest. you, have a guest. you bring out the good cream cheese. Right. You bring out the good cheese. It's, and it's not even, I don't, I wouldn't, I, I, I loathe to call it cream cheese. It's, it's herb cheese, mm -hmm. which happens to be kind of in a creamier form because you can spread it. Right. I believe the term you're looking for is fromage blanc. Fromage blanc. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Uh, <laughs> you know, a shout to Alex Trebek. Now <laughs> here's an interesting thing is what I've learned about cheese. And maybe we can have this discussion a little deep, more deeply. Sure. I used to go for my grated cheese. I used to go with the cheese blend, mm -hmm. but I've since converted to the. I'm, I'm a. I've become a Parmigiano Reggiano guy yeah. for, for the for the sprinkling cheese. Yeah, 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 yeah. Become that. That's that's who I've become. And um, you get a block and you grate it yourself. I do. Uh, ideally, yes. What I'll do is I I save all these old jars and I'll I'll grate them. You know, for like a week a week's usage at a time. Yeah. Uh, depending on what I'm using. Um, this last time around, I bought the pre-made because I wasn't sure how long it would last. You know, I didn't want to. You know, I had, I had a bunch of other cheese in my little cheese drawer. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I do. You know, and this is what we can talk about. I have a I have feta. Yeah. So I buy the cre the pre-crumbled feta, mm -hmm. but I was actually over at a friend's house for the election coverage. We did a socially distanced election watch, mm -hmm. and she had these these exquisite. Ethan, just flat sheets of feta cheese. Yeah. That were so aromatic and flavorful. And aromatic and oily oh. and beautiful. And then just kind of blend like there was these roasted vegetables and they just blended them in there and we were cutting and it was just so it was so I'm wondering if I may convert to I'm I'm no longer gonna buy the crumbled feta. I may just buy the block of feta and slice it myself now. Well here's the thing. Uh, first of all, I love that we're talking about this and you're it sounds delicious everything you're doing. In general, not just cheese, anything, single serve or individual or pre-cut is never going to be as good as the real whole thing because it's not going to be as fresh. Right. Vinny, you cut into something. Would you rather have, you know, five-day-old, uh, you know, uh, sliced salami or would you rather have a beautiful thing that you're cutting off and then can uh, and, and you go slowly? Right. I mean, think of it this way. If you go into a cheese shop, you go into the deli, they don't have the deli meat sitting around pre-cut. They cut right. it for you. And that's because it's going to get bad. So I would highly recommend um, getting a, a Parmigiano Reggiano and grating yourself when you need it and not putting it in the fridge. Uh, and for the feta, absolutely. The only thing I would say is that for um, guys uh, like us who don't have like, you know, uh, kids or family and you're not eating that much, the blocks tend to be bought in bigger amounts. So they'll go bad and you don't end up not using it. But I would rather throw out, you know, a quarter of good feta then uh, because it went too old then uh, then have the pre-cut um fascinating we need to do a cheese podcast so you, you gave me you gave me an idea now so i'm gonna well, do, go do that is, I, I i wish i wish i were on here with something to pitch or something to to plug um but i have absolutely been working behind the scenes on trying to figure out what that looks like and how i can combine my interest and expertise in cheese with the other thing I love, which is, you know, being with people and kind of hosting and being around in that way. So I, I have been considering it. It's well, it's funny you bring that up. So so I was kind of the opposite of you because I kind of pride myself on being kind of like the cynical misanthropic jerk, you know. And so the lockdown and, you know, and I'm around people for work. So it's a whole different thing. But the lockdown flipped me in the sense that, you know, I felt like Charlton Heston in Planet of the Apes, you know, when he talks about. He wants to go off into space, but then he feels lonely. I'm like, wow, I actually miss like about a month in. I was like, she was going to be our Eve with our hot and heavy health. <laughs> I, I, I was amazed at how much I missed people and not just like people I like and people I know, just the random experience 
of walking through the grocery store at the cheese aisle and yeah. seeing what are these other people, what kind of cheeses are they buying? Why is this lady jumping up and down about the ricotta cheese? Why is this guy demanding cheddar instead of American? Those questions are, are, are out there now. Uh, uh, you're, I mean, you're sort of joking, but it's true. We, not just for cheese, for anything, we, we thrive, even the most misanthropic of us. And by the way, that is never how I or anyone I know who knows you would describe you. I would never use the word, you are not a miss, far from it. Um, but we do miss not only the, the actual physical interaction that we need as, as pack animals, but you're right, I, I am dumber today than I was a year ago. There's no doubt about it. I am 100% stupider than I was last year because I am not learning from people in the way I used to. I'm not out there getting ideas bounced off. I'm not saying something that someone corrects or someone tells me more, um, I, 100%. I mean, cheese in particular, you're right, because not only the cheese counter at, at grocery stores, but specialty stores, when you go into a real cheese shop, yeah. the point is to go there and taste and try this. What are you cutting? That's interesting. And now that doesn't exist. Um, and it's been a real problem for the industry. I mean, uh, the, the, the cheese industry is having a very, everyone's having a difficult moment. Everyone's having a difficult moment. David Letterman had a very famous bit about knowing your cuts of meat. So I think what you and I could do is combine our love for cheese and our love for game shows. And I don't know how we would do it. Like I was thinking at first we come up with a sandwich and you got to pick the right cheese, you know, but maybe we could expand it in because we could go all ethnic. Right. I mean, uh -huh. go, uh, you know, you know, hey, I got the sog. You get you give me the paneer, which paneer, you know, like which <laughs> what are you going to use on this? Um, because I've seen, well, cheesesteaks, for example. Right. So the, the basic Philly cheesesteak, yep. right? the cheesesteak, you can use numerous different cheeses on it. Whiz, whiz. Yeah, I'm a whiz guy too. So it was funny. I went, and this is be probably before the pandemic, I was at a food truck. And there was a, it was, he said authentic Philly cheesesteak, and the whiz wasn't an option. And I said to him, wait a minute, if you're really from Philly, why is there not a whiz? And he made, gave some kind of roundabout excuse to which I thought. Bullshit. He's not really from Philly. Yeah. <laughs> really. Uh, yeah. I have that problem with Jersey Mike's too when I go in there because, you know, being from New Jersey, there are things they do that nobody in New Jersey would do. But that's a whole other thing. Yeah. I give them credit for being a national chain. Well, don't even get me started on the, the attitude, the looks I get from people when people want to order pizza. And I'm like, eh, I'm, I'm good. I don't need to order pizza in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm fine. There, there is good pizza here. It's just not, it's not New York pizza. It's not New York pizza. We'll have to take you up to once this whole thing calms down a little bit. I'll we'll take you for for pizza. Uh, Where are you? What's your hold on? What's your what, what's your uh, what, what's your pizza selection in, in L.A.? My go-to is uh, Enzo's. He's a Brooklyn guy. He does the Brooklyn okay. style pizza. Um, I like. There's a place I've been wanting to go. A friend of mine is in Pasadena, and it's a spot in Eagle Rock, which is very famous, like Pizza Donkey huh. or something like that. Uh, no, but what? Um, what's blown up in LA, I don't know if you're, I was never a fan of artisan pizza. Yeah. But there's, well, artisan, good, there's some you, good artisan pizza, you know. But do you mean, do you mean Neapolitan style pizza or different kinds of pizza? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's ostensibly Neapolitan, but you know, depending on where you go, they do a little, they do it a little differently. Which but is it's, great. It's just not, it's not a slice of pizza the way, it's not, it's not what you're craving when you want a slice of pizza. If I want to go, yeah, for a slice of pizza, I will, I'll do one, two, three. I'll go Enzo's, I'll go Mulberry Street. Classic. I agree. And and then there's like, I need, like, there's always a place, like, the Sicilian is is the one that's always hard to get. Where would well, I go for Sicilian? I fully, I'm going to try Enzo's. I trust you. Mulberry, I believe, is the closest facsimile to New York style we have here, and I think it's totally good. Um, Kim and I lately have been eating mostly because it's close to us, but I do think it's really delicious. Uh, Nancy Silverton's place, Triple Triple Beam, okay. which is New York style pizza. In fact, it's more just like artisan flatbread with cheese and different toppings, but it is delicious. So there's stuff to eat. There's stuff. To eat. When when I get frustrated with pizza in LA, Ethan, I just go have Mexican food. So that, uh, that that's my solution too. Uh, no, I mean, I I have always eaten Mexican food. I I 90% of my meals are on street corners. I it okay. is is the great. In fact, I love Los Angeles so much that I I felt like I was remiss for years in my lack of understanding of Mexico and Mexico City in particular. I felt like how dare I be? A, I felt like a bad neighbor for not knowing Mexico very well. 
And over the last years, five or six years, I've been going more and spending, you know, two, three weeks at a time. I've gone to New Mexico City a little bit. I love it there because it is a real sister city to Los Angeles. And if you love L.A., I think you're very hard pressed not to love that city also. Um, but one thing I realized when I went in my travels to Mexico and I've begun to know it better, even Oaxaca, where the food is spectacular. And I speak to a lot of Mexicans who are who are either live in America or Americans of Mexican descent. Uh, I go there. I'm like, where should I go? What's great? What can't I miss? I'm real foodie. And they all tell you that if you live in L.A., you've got great. Like, it's not that different. And we have, I mean, the Mexican food here, all the, I mean, you want to go to a love song. I love this city for a lot of reasons, but almost every food type you can think of is better here than almost anywhere else. Yeah, it's great. It's a, I mean, it is a very good food city. Um, Ethan Brosowski, thank you very much. Before I let you go, give me a last parting thought on your, your relationship with Jeopardy and the great Alex Trebek. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's an insane that you asked. Uh, I'm the, the least winningest Jeopardy person I know, but I am really glad to be able to reminisce and talk with you about it and about everything else. I do want to do our cheese event. Um, I will say this, um, particularly in light of uh, what you usually talk about uh, on this show and what your, your listeners might want to hear about. I believe that what you said before, Jeopardy is a piece of Americana. It's a piece of American history. There's no doubt the reason America is so sad about losing Alex Trebek is because he is such a part of our lives and welcomed into our uh, homes. And he was fantastic at what he did by all accounts, not a perfect guy, but a stand-up guy. Um, and I think part of the reason that Americans have made him so famous and made Jeopardy so much a part of their lives is because it combines some of our favorite things as Americans. And that is, Yes, it's a trivia show. Firstly, people like knowledge, general knowledge. They like trivia. They like knowing that they can get it. It's absolutely a trivia show. But it also combines gambling, which people love. So you go through this, and there's all kinds of trivia, and then you come up at uh, Final Jeopardy, and you're gambling, bet it all. So you could you could miss it, you could get it, you could uh, come from behind. It's that real that gambling spirit that we love, and that of course comes from. Um, the underpinning of the entire show, and I know I'll probably get a, a lot of uh, feedback, negative feedback on this, but I really believe it. The true reason people love Jeopardy in America is we love sports, and Jeopardy is an athletic show. It is a race. It is about timing. I mean, if golf and curling are sports, then Jeopardy has that those aspects too. It is a race to the buzzer. It is hand-eye coordination. It is physical prowess. That once you can do that, then you have the right to try to answer and then you can gamble about it and race and scramble. So I, I, I often, and maybe this is just aggrandizing it because I've never been picked anything but last for any team I've ever played on in my entire life. But I, I like to think of Jeopardy as um, some sort of athleticism and some sort of great American sport that I am in some way I'm part of. So there are two things in my sports that I've really been involved in, in my life, curling and Jeopardy. So that, that'll, that'll tell you what kind of Jew I am. Brzezowski <laughs> will never have his name on the Stanley Cup. He will forever he will forever be a Jeopardy champion. I thank you, my friend. It's great to thank catch you. up with you. Great talking. I really appreciate it.